0: The Zone Coverage Podcast Network.
1: This podcast is presented in front of a live Astadio audience. Hey, hey, it's Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. You can find Midwest Swing at Midwest Swing Pod and Zone Coverage at Zone Coverage MN. I'm your host, Brandon Warren, at Brandon underscore Warren on Twitter. And in studio today, we've got producer Justin across the screen here producing and getting all the things, uh, all the buttons pushed for us so that we can get the show off without a hitch. And then across the table from me is Tom Schreier at T Schreier
2: 3. What's good today, man? I just, to to peel back behind the scenes, I was at the game yesterday. Twins, obviously, you, you had put it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. There's some Twins fever. There's uh the, the tickets are cheap. It's, you know, mm-hmm. five bucks because they haven't yep. been very good. Um, but uh, people are coming out in Dros to uh, support this team. It's kind of the truth about Minnesota. It's smart fans. They're not, you know, I think people here realize if you support a bad team, you're probably just going to get a bad team over and over again. True. Um, but all of a sudden you're starting to see the twin sats. And people are going to the games and especially on a nice day like this, take advantage of it. But um, you were there. Um, the reason why we're doing this now uh, is that you have a special guest. Yeah, so
1: we have a special guest today. You know him as the rookie from the Disney movie, The Rookie, Jim Morris, former left-handed pitcher for the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. He'll be on here in a little bit. Before we get to him, we'll talk twins. I took a picture outside Target Field today, and there were people everywhere 20 minutes after first pitch. Now, I don't want this to be a referendum on security because some people have been upset about how the security (laughs) lines work and all that. I don't know enough about that. to ruminate on that. All I'm seeing is that, oof, yeah. going through a little Woo. over here. All I'm saying is that people are so fired up about the Twins. I mean, there's buses lining right. the lot right. out here. There are fans, there's kids, there's, it's, it's a, it's a crazy atmosphere at the park today. I'll be heading back there after we get done with the show, but it's, it's good to see that the the tide has turned. And as the weather has warmed up, fans have started turning out. It You know, again, you, like you said, it's helped that tickets have been cheaper. However, I think that fans are starting to warm up to this team as we as we see Trevor May getting warmed up to go into the game. Yeah,
2: so we're we're recording this in the middle of Wednesday's game. Yep. So um, this is
1: a it's actually kind of fun. I I enjoy sitting here watching baseball. I, I'm gonna try my
2: best to not look at it too much and get distracted. But right, right. So yeah, we you know, kind of watching uh, the game that you were at like just moments ago. But yeah, we're about four steps from Target Field in the T three building. Right. Maybe right. five. Maybe five if you take them small. Yeah, you can see it uh, behind. In the field. But yeah, I, I think um it's funny. There's just a part of me that A really commends them from for realizing there were there was a lot of uncertainty around the the pitching this year. And I think they're the starting pitching in the kids. Yes. And so what they did is is went and got boppers who were cheap. Mm-hmm. And um the the Crohn's, the cruises. Those they they kinds played of the players. market
1: perfectly and I'm gonna write that up. So just yeah, so yeah, people yeah, if yeah. they're listening to it now. I'm going to write how the market dictated how the twins handled this offseason rather than the other, or the twins. The twins adapted their thinking to the market rather than the other way around, where, you know, if you sign guys in the wrong order, you can end up spending more money. Like if you sign player X on the third day of free agency when demand is high, you're bound yeah. to spend more money, like they did with Jason Castro. Whereas if you wait until February, you know, like they did with Marvin Gonzalez, you're going to get a deal. There's always give and take, ebb and flow for that, but it's hard to argue with their offseason and how it's gone so far.
2: Right. So How how
1: the season has gone since the offseason ended.
2: So I think they took a practical approach to a lot of uncertainty around the team. Mm -hmm. I think Byron Buxton, to start with, who should be the superstar on the team, looks like a good player. I'm a little worried that he did homer today. Mm -hmm. I'm a little worried we're going to have this narrative of a hits-doubles, not home runs and it's like yeah but he's Did like you just, faster you look, you than everybody looked like
1: the spongebob meme when you said that yeah
2: I, I i'm a frustrated man because i'm like we just got over another player who people didn't like because he didn't know homer so i i think <laughs> <laughs> if you add up if you add up buxton's number uh you get the the two numbers on his yep, jersey. There you, you get go. The other one but uh which is intentional i believe buxton wore seven in most of the minor mm, league stuff but um He's starting to look like the star he's supposed to be. The throw, unfortunately, that Garver got injured on was a P. He can get around the bases fast. We know he's a great defensive player, um, starting to hit a little bit. I, all positive developments. Polanco looks like, like I didn't expect that. I think he's a good player. The way he's playing now is super Especially with how he's hitting. Garver, unfortunately, gets hurt as he's just on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, Kepler seems to take over this leadoff role that I didn't really, him and Garver, I did not see his leadoff players i still i still don't necessarily see
1: kepler right now as one yeah like a 309 on base yeah but i get it because he's got enough walks that it yeah. makes sense i still think polanco might be the better choice but I, I get where rocco's coming from there
2: um yeah so i think these players are benefiting from a filled out lineup mm-hmm. um yeah one through nine there's no weak spot i, I think some of these cliches are half true the hitting is contagious protection in the lineup but i think there is some truth to all that i think the bottom line is Good players play great on a good team. And the Twins just threw together a good team the best way you they th- possibly throw could. You threw together
1: a good team and then you have good leadership and you can become better than the sum of your parts. And that's yeah. what's been the case so far.
2: Um, I, there's some trepidation around what they do with the, the fifth pitcher. Pineda, I think... He's like a weird kind of Pelfrey to me, where we talked about Big Pelf all the way down to Tommy John last year. And my my point there is, by the way, Mike Pelfrey, like the man, was a a great person. Mm-hmm. There was times I wanted to be like, "Hey, dude, like it's all right, be a reliever."
1: It's like, all right, man.
2: Yeah, and, and I and I don't know where Pineda stands on that. I think guys get it stuck in their head that I'm a better player if I'm a starter. And I think the best thing Glenn Perkins, for example, did with his career was go. Not a great starter. I'm going to be a lights-out reliever. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, to be fair, he'd be joining a bullpen, and I think I'm going to write about this as they leave town, that the mentality around that is completely correct. Blake Parker's been good, but let's not make him the closer. I'll I'll work wherever you need. Trevor May's fine going from a potential starter to a good reliever. But also, Trevor May can work the ninth in a tie game. The sixth
1: with runners on and the tying run at the plate like you just saw here today. Yeah. He can do
2: whatever you ask of him. And these guys are all just steal a cliche rowing the boat. Right. Um, so yeah, the Tom Kelly line, which I think is still in the locker. Room. I was I stealing it remember, from PJ but, Fleck, but oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But isn't it? But everyone grabbed or was, yeah, we're all in this. I think, I, think, I think PJ Fleck may have stole something from T- Tom T- Kelly, T-J <laughs> but, uh, but, um, uh, you know, but Hildenberger doesn't seem phased by literally inheriting. It seems like every runner that twins have put on base mm-hmm. late, in the, late in the game. Um, I mean, you look at a guy like Taylor Rogers, who I I didn't know much about, kind of like Hildenberger until he kind of got here, faces down Mike Trout and punches him out of the game. Mm -hmm. Big, big moment. So I think I, you know, you don't want to disrupt the um, the chemistry they have there and the mentality they have that it's it's literally just about getting outs if there is a player who ends up kind of standing out or who would benefit from being in a closer role, I don't want to completely dismiss this Glenn Perkins, who is very analytically inclined, mm-hmm. who, you know, um, I think thinks about baseball in a good way pointed out. He's like, I am best as a closer because I want to know, I want to have a routine from inning one to nine that I go through every time so that I'm, you know, I, I pitch as best as I can. And I, so because I respect that, I think maybe they end up with a closer at some point. But for right now, it's I like this kind of mix and match. You, you know, even like last night, they didn't feel like you had to get one guy had to get out the inning. Right. They I think it was Ryan Harper kind of came in, got two outs. They went. I can't remember who they Hildenberger who where they went to. Mm-hmm. But um, I like the mentality of somehow we're just going to get through the nine innings, not give up a run, uh, come out with a win. And fortunately, the bullpen will be helped by a better rotation and games that will get out of hand because the twins can hit
1: yeah absolutely i think the bullpen is a also a sum of its parts and the guy's willing to do what's asked of them and i think too they're going to be able to add whether it's addison reed or jake reed addison reed's struggling in his yeah assignment. i saw that gave up homers to el Cides escobar and paul and i don't Ronaldo. think
2: even touching 90 i it's unfortunate because oh. he was very reliable and actually liked the pickup but yeah yeah um yeah, not looking good.
1: So I don't know what's going to happen with with him when his rehab is up. But Jake
2: Reed, long time kind of soldier, if you will, of the in the organization, third wide receiver from three deep. Right, and, right. So, Reinvent himself. Yeah. And uh, just to be clear, that's not true. That's but, not accurate. But yeah, uh, <laughs> uh,
1: wild traffic downtown today. Though I I, I want to get back to this for just a second. Yeah. Twins fever sweeping the city, and am I am I just seeing what I think I see, or are you seeing it as well? I mean, so when you when you look at Target Field. The best way to gauge how many tickets were sold is to look in the upper deck and see where the furthest back person is.
2: Yeah. So yeah. if there's
1: people in that back row, there's a good chance the Twins sold twenty seven or thirty thousand tickets. Yeah. Which was the case today. I'm, I'm assuming they're going to announce an attendance of 29,000, which is yeah. you know, it's fairly good. But it's just it's really great to see and hear and feel this as a baseball city again because I feel like maybe since the first year of target field we have not felt that buzz and that buzz is huge it can turn it can turn a a big league game into what feels like a minor league game and i feel like my stories go from you know seven page views to you know yeah 7000 yeah, 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 whatever yeah, yeah. i mean it's just crazy it's just yeah, absolutely
2: I, crazy i think um like i say it goes back to i think the way to gauge fan bases i'm not just talking the one here is engagement meaning um do they notice if the team starts to get good Mm -hmm. and kind of how do they react when when it starts to plummet downhill i it seemed like by like 2014 a lot of people were like oh the stadium's nice but man i paid for this well and now and and which is a bummer the last few years it's been the uh, minnesota's best open air bar yeah and and to be fair i think there was excitement around the 83 win season because it was unexpected and i think People. Yeah, but
1: even still, it never got to that fevered pitch.
2: Yeah, and and eighty five was fun. The problem is, it just seemed like a and that team still never drew the numbers
1: where it felt like you were watching any games that were playoff games during the season. Yeah, and I I think it like last night felt to me like a much more spirited crowd, and you can speak to it. Maybe no,
2: and, and I I saw the same thing. I you know it's uh, we'll give a shout out, Matt Trueblood, listener, uh, baseball presenter. Prospectus writer. Um we were discussing kind of attendance across baseball. Yeah, I think he and, does listen. Um yeah, he told he told me he listens to the show, which I was excited about. Um mm-hmm. very good writer definitely. Uh check him out. For he sure. you know, he, we were talking about attendance across baseball and kind of the different fan bases and stuff. There's 26 almost 27,000 people at the you know, at the Tuesday game that I was at and it felt full because it was loud because there was kind of the fans are spread out all over. Um yeah, it it does feel different, and I think I think the hope here is, unfortunately, the eighty five win team seemed like they were just kind of picking off, picking up where like the ten team kind of was, and it's easy to say that because they went to Yankee Stadium and mm-hmm. got walloped after getting a you know an early lead, but there's nothing exciting about that. That if you're in the Metrodome and you almost got contracted, your standards are different than. If, the, mm-hmm. you know, the taxpayers pick up the bill or two thirds of the bill for a new stadium, you're outdoors. It, it, there's a different expectation that comes with that. And the expectation no longer is, you know, and uh, Guardi was great, but Guardi also was seven and 21 or something in the postseason. Um, the only series they won, ironically, was over the Moneyball A's. Mm-hmm. But that was the first, you know, that, that was the first one, right? Oh, two. Um, that won't cut it. I don't think, for the fan base. And I, I guess the belief here as we watch the Twins continue to pile on with the on the Angels is... A dinger. This feels different. This team feels different. Um, it feels like a team geared to contend not be like Twins good, Still if that means, makes no, sense. No losing streaks longer than two games this year. And and really bad losses. I mean, the no. 11-0, yeah. um, the, the, the Mets one was like... It, you know, there was a scene like that in Moneyball, right, where he walks into the stadium and all of a yeah. sudden he's like, oh, my God, I'm causing the team to lose. Right. Um, I, I think it, it felt a little like that where you're like, man, I just feel bad for everybody who, involved here. Who do you think that guy is, though? Is it that
1: Levine? <laughs> I hope not. I don't think he throws stuff like that. I don't think he's that intense. Um.
2: Yeah, I mean, I that's something that was well portrayed in that movie. And it just, yeah, there was just this ominous feeling that, like, here the twins are facing, you know, a it, surprisingly good, at least for someone like me, who doesn't watch the NL as much surprisingly good, uh, Mets team. And oh boy, like they're coming apart. Phillies, um, Odorizzi, who I, you know, has that pitched clung pretty well start where he didn't even, finish and it, the and it was r- probably rain related and stuff. Um, yeah, it feels different. And this all leads to, um, and I, I feel like I referenced the ringer. Podcast yeah. I was going to say all the time.
1: we, we got to get to that uh, before we get to our guests. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. We're running um, out of time here, Tom, to,
2: to yeah, maintain your brand. Yes. Um, the uh, Hey, they're giving back. They're they're putting us in the uh, stories. I right? yeah. like to stories. So, yeah. Like um,
1: putting you in them, not me.
2: Yeah. Um, although I feel like did you have – there was one I saw, and I was like – I yeah, thought they the deal might have been yours. But, uh, yeah, regardless, they suggested – and, again, sometimes I just listen to what national people say, especially about the, about the twins. They suggested the twins should trade for Madison Garner. Here are the conditions. I on, hate it. I hate it. And why is that? I want to hear what they said first, but I S- hate it. So, 29 years old. Obviously success when he mm-hmm. was younger. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's a loophole, do where he he basically is saying, I don't want to leave there, which I that's what I kind of don't love about this. But um he put on teams Well, they know Minnesota is San Francisco East, so I mean it'd be okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> but he he um I, I think you know, he put on like the, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Cardinals teams you'd expect to contend all year long. They're saying if you want to get that fifth reliever, get a guy who's 29. The fifth starter, you mean? Fifth starter, yeah. sorry. Fifth starter, get a guy who's 29, has won before. Um, yeah, his numbers in the playoffs are obscene. Yeah, this is an opportunity. I don't I don't want to get to the level where you're talking Royce Lewis, Kirilov, Gratterall. I'm trying to think of those top, top, top. Larnix in, th- in that mix, maybe. Yeah. But um, here's the
1: thing. For me. Yeah. That's like the Caddyshack scene. I ain't paying no 50 cents for no Coke. Yeah. You ain't getting no Coke. And I think uh, – <laughs> I don't think you're getting Madison Bumgarner unless you give up at least one of those guys. And yeah,
2: and that's, that's kind of nuts.
1: Like he's legit kind of nuts. Yeah. And like there's good nuts. There's bad nuts. I mean like almonds and, and cashews. But <sighs> he's won games. He's beloved in San Francisco. So it can't all be bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just not sure that I think – I don't know. You know what? I will say this. When the Astros went all in and got Justin Verlander, it changed something. Yeah. Is that is that what the Twins need to do? I, I'm i not sure that I buy it, and I'm not sure that he's that guy. But short of any other opportunity to get a, get one of those, I guess – Maybe I'm talking myself into it. Maybe it's all the heat because I'm wearing a black jacket today and we're yeah. in a 90-degree studio, you know. But uh, maybe I maybe I will talk myself into it eventually because I do think that as much as they didn't think this was their window opening now, it, it, it may well be. Add to that the fact that, you know, extensions have been easier to come by for pitchers, and it's certainly possible they could sign them to a, four-year deal worth $100 million, you know, right. the deal they might have given to you, um, Darvish. You know what I mean? So yeah. if if he sees Minnesota going in a direction that he likes, signs with them, then I think you can trade one of those top guys. I really do think, however, that you can't trade Kirloff. You can't trade you, you Lewis, ch- but Yeah. Anybody else has to be available, even Gratterall, and I know he's close. He's in Pensacola. Yeah. Our guy Chris Blessing shared video of him from last Wish night. Which
2: that the it's hard to describe on a podcast, but the way the ball moves. He had arm like,
1: side run on his fastball, yeah, yeah, ninety six yeah. to ninety eight, with arm side run at a good slider. Uh, he, he looked like a good he looked like a good pitcher. It's just that he's not not quite ready. I guess he said the changeup needs a little work, and still though, when you get that close. It, Think about Fernando Romero two years ago, and fans wouldn't trade him for anybody or they would have wanted tons back for him. Right. Now think of Fernando Romero now. Struggle a little bit, yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 all good and well for these guys to have crazy value, but at the same time, there is no such thing as a pitching prospect. Let's
2: say this. I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. Yeah. Lewis and Kirloff, I wouldn't touch them. Nope, nope. I, especially with one year left on the deal. Yeah. Now... I think
1: without tampering, you can say you need to have an extension in place. Yeah. I think that's allowed. I think you can do that. It's not... I mean, it's it's just kind of a handshake agreement until
2: that player is Also, trading. it's in the Giants' interest. The Giants, I think, would actually love to have... You know, like... Now, he... Not, I mean, think I think they'd be glad to keep him. I think they'd be glad to let him go and get
1: compensation. Yeah. I think they'd be happy to get a ton back for him. I don't think there's a losing scenario for the Giants in this situation.
2: Yeah. I... I bring it up only because there the twins are in a weird spot where I would not don't throw off the clubhouse. I, there's it the chemistry works there. Um, and to be fair, I'd actually, you know, conf- Bumgarner is
1: a big personality. Like yeah. Corner locker. Don't look at me. Yeah. I not quite like the basketball. Wasn't it Chris? No. Who was it? was don't look at me. Uh, oh, Ryan leaf. Yeah, yeah. Get out of here. He said yeah. some, one of those
2: tirades that, um, that, uh, Gets played over and over on blooper reels and that sort of thing. Right. But my preference would be it's like Lewis Thorpe or something. Like try a, a I just guy don't, who's close. I just
1: don't think there's enough there. I know.
2: Or or you know what you could do is you Cole Stewart with an opener. You might go that yeah, way. Yeah,
1: trade for but Marcus Stroman if you ask me. Yeah. I,
2: mean,
1: I don't know if, if the price there is any cheaper because it's an extra year of control. So <laughs> if if Stroman's price is the same, you may as well go another year or you may as well just try to extend Bumgarner at 29. Bumgarner actually like younger than Kyle Gibson, believe it or not.
2: Yeah. And
1: he's been in the big leagues for like seven or eight. I think about it, I think about it. Years.
2: With, with what we discussed. I, I think about it just because kind of strike while the, the iron's hot. So
1: who wrote the article? Was it Robert Bauman or uh, Michael Bauman? It was, it was I, I think. It, Robert Bauman's the fan. Uh, not yeah, I
2: think Bauman brought it up and he was running it by Zach Cram maybe or something Was like it
1: a, an article or a podcast? In, on the podcast, yep. What so their verdict was that they should do
2: it. Yes, they believe so. How did they, to, how are they this is it? what I hesitate against the national media. They, to be fair, don't know the team as well as you know, as we do. Okay, being in locker rooms, you know. Well, hey,
1: the guest is on the line. I think we can probably pull him up. So we've got Jim Morris on the line at Jim Morris six three six three. How are you doing today, man? I'm fantastic, Brandon. How are you? I'm doing great. So glad to get you in here. And you know, we've been We've been working on details, the fine details of getting you on here for, uh, I'd say, about a month. So we really, really are thrilled to have you on. Uh, where are we getting you today? What uh, what city are you in? San Antonio, Texas. Oh, wow. So, uh, well, we're experiencing some nice warm weather here, too. It's finally over 70. We're almost done with snow. No, I'm kidding. The snow's gone. Um, we're, we're getting into that warmth weather, and I, I suppose you're kind of dealing with that as well. Absolutely. So... I got to ask you, you know, before we get going too far down the path, what was your upbringing like? I know you had a a father in the Navy. You know, how did you get into baseball, and who stoked your love for the game?
3: Oh, man. Rough question. Um, father was abusive, but he was in the Navy, and so we moved constantly, and he demanded strict discipline, and Mm -hmm. so we weren't allowed to talk. And I found out really quickly that if I played sports, I got to be the kid I was supposed to be. And Mm -hmm. this is when I was really young. We were out in Oakland. And so back then, it was Vita Blue and those guys.
0: Oh, yeah. And then
3: when we're in Connecticut, it was Fred Lynn and Dwight Evans and all those guys. And so baseball, to me, was just that. Running around, having fun, getting to play a game, and actually being good at what you're doing just made it icing on top of the cake. And so for me, baseball was a way for me to fit in. So when did the bug,
1: go ahead. So when did the baseball bug bite you though? I mean, was it very early or were you a little bit older? Oh,
3: no, I was five. Oh, wow. That's very early. And, uh, yeah. And I, I became skilled really quickly. And so when I was seven, I played a 10 year old league. When I was 10, I played in the 13 year old league. Wow. And for me, and I didn't pitch then. I just played first outfield or hit. And it was just, the love of the game, being able to catch everything. And I never played against anybody. I played against myself. So if I could do better this game and then do better than that, the next game, Mm -hmm. I was happy. If I improved on one thing, I wanted to improve on one thing.
1: When, when did you feel like you had a chance to go professional though? I mean, was it very early or was it in high school?
3: (sighs) I knew I was really good because people were coming up to me and coming into town, Into a football city in Brownwood, Texas, and going, we think you've got something. And the Yankees drafted me right out of high school and had never even seen me. And I thought, wow. And so I knew people were watching, but at that point it was either football or baseball because I had a chance to go either way. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: And but football has always been my love, and so I mean baseball has. And so baseball for me, they give you even an inch. You want to play baseball? I'm in. (laughs) And You know, it's just an individual sport within a team sport. It's a chess match, and I love that. Whether you're playing, whether you're coaching, whether you're pitching, whether you're in the outfield, it's adjusting to what other teams do that's such a fun game, and that's I love baseball.
1: Were were you ever close to signing with the Yankees, or was it so far back in the draft that you weren't
3: going to sign no matter what? You know, they were going to draft me as an outfielder, and back then I was really fast, and... My grandfather was really sick with ALS, and I just oh, thought wow. he he could pass away before I get home from a season. I'm not doing that. And so I went to junior college for a semester, and he ended up passing away that December. So I was glad I stayed.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's, you know, family first, and, and of course. So you went in the secondary phase, fourth overall. Milwaukee took you. What did the secondary draft mean? Because they had that back then. They don't have it now. So I, I'm sure a lot of people listening— may not know that there was an entirely different draft that took place, I think, in January, if I'm not mistaken.
3: That was a supplemental draft for guys that didn't sign the previous June. And so, like, we had Kevin Brown, who was from Alabama mm-hmm. and he came into Ranger Junior College, and he got drafted third, I got drafted fourth, we had Ellis Burks on our team, and he got drafted, and Ellis stayed, Kevin and I took a chance. And I have to say that if I had to do it over again, I would have stayed at least a year or two and gotten more seasoning in because the, the competition jumps really quickly from high school to pro ball.
1: When was the first time that you felt truly like you were with your peers rather than a head and shoulders above the others? Was it that first year in pro ball?
3: I thought I was outclassed, man. I got there and everybody I'd been throwing to was from my hometown. And most of those guys played football and baseball was just something to do to keep them from hauling hay all summer. And so here I am striking all these guys. I think I'm hot stuff. And I go out there and everybody's throwing harder. Everybody has more control. Everybody has more pitches. Everybody has more confidence. And I thought, what have I done? And immediately when that gets in your head, you're in trouble. And so I was always fighting back, trying to get caught up with everybody as quickly as I could, and that caused injuries.
1: You, you have a few teammates I want to ask you about because you played with some pretty interesting names. In, in Paintsville, you played with Chris bazio and Dan Plesek. Obviously, Basio has been a pitching coach in the game, and I'm not sure what he's doing now. But Dan Plesek's on TV on MLB Network. Did you develop any relationships with those guys that still you maintain today?
3: You know, bazio was one of my roommates in A-ball, when we were way back young. And then please, Zach and I were roommates in extended, or not extended, but fall ball. Mm-hmm. And so we went to the Arizona Fall League. He and I were roommates. And I have to tell you, I love both the guys. And both are incredible competitors. Please, Zach and I clicked a little bit more. And that's just because he has a sick sense of humor, kind of like I do. <laughs> and so, you know, we found some things to laugh at that other people probably would have gone, that's gross, but, you know, When you find somebody in common, you go for it. And we had a good time together. He was really talented.
1: How were those guys as peers, though? I mean, what we find with guys who make the big leagues, at those very young ages, you can tell that they are a cut above most of their peers. And sometimes that's not the case, I guess. But was it very clear that they were some of the more skilled players in that league that year?
3: Absolutely. You know, Bazio was a fierce, fierce competitor. And he would hit somebody... Just to say, let's go. And so people would back down. And so his competitiveness got him to where he was, and then his talent got him the rest away. Pleasac just came in and started throwing gas. And when he wasn't throwing gas, he was throwing 91 mile an hour sliders. Wow. Which is pretty rough. It's just like, okay, he's got the talent. And typical lefty, a little off kilter. And yeah, just careful, careful. I'm left handed too.
1: <laughs> huh? I said, careful, I'm left-handed just like you. I, I am of the I right, I'm of the right mind too. So
3: <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> but you, So you put, said please sex a little bit off the wall then? He's a lefty. What <laughs> can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So the next year in Beloit, you played uh, Tom Cadiotti passed through there, I assume on a rehab stint of some type uh, because he was 26 already at that point. But did you get to know him at all, the knuckleballer?
3: You know what, my first season of pro ball, Tom Candiotti and I, before spring training happened, he and I were roommates out in California in 1983, and he was working on his knuckleball. And we were supposed to be there to be playing and getting in shape and throwing and then having games. And what ended up happening was it rained for three straight weeks before spring training. And so L.A. flooded and ended up Andre the Giant stayed in our oh, wow. hotel, no-tell thing. And so our electricity's out one night, and he and I are playing cards, and we look up in the window because we got the window open for light, and Andre the Giant is looking in our window. <laughs> and I just thought, you are the largest human being I've ever seen in my life. But Candiotti was a blast, man. And he ended up developing that knuckleball, and he kept playing.
1: Boy, he was good. Yeah, I think that was around the time Andre the Giant – uh, was in the first WrestleMania and all that too, so he was kind of at his fevered pitch in terms of popularity in uh, in the World Wrestling Federation at that point. So that would, that would have had to have been quite a sight to behold. I doubt you've seen anybody nearly that big since then.
3: Oh my lord, he was huge.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a very special human being. So the the next year in Stockton, you played with Tim Cruz, who obviously had a very tragic end to his life. Um, what, what did you remember him? What was it like when those guys had that boating accident in 93? Because that was when I was very young. I was eight years old when that happened. And I remember watching it on sports center and trying to grasp the gravity of the situation, but it sounded like two wonderful guys were lost there. I think the other one was, uh, Steve Olin, but, um, did you get to know
3: Tim Cruz? Well, I did get to know Tim and fantastic person, fantastic competitor, always found something to laugh at, and we were stunned when that happened. I mean, things happen all the time. that are out of our control, mm-hmm. but some things affect us a little bit more. And even though it's baseball and even though you're competing against guys to get up a level, there's still that camaraderie of we're on the same team and we know each other and we play together, and how could this happen? And so there was a lot of people that were stunned and just wondered – what happened? And we never really got clarification on anything other than what you heard, probably.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, so that was just, a rough. That was a rough time. Just horrible. Yeah, Bobby Ojeda was also uh, injured in that, and yeah, just a just a really rough time for Cleveland. The next year, though, uh, back to back to your career in '86, uh, you don't you didn't pitch at all. It was uh, I would assume injury related. What was going on with you at that point?
3: Tommy John surgery.
1: Okay, so th- at that point, I mean. What What is the prognosis for Tommy John surgery now uh, 33 years ago? I mean, was it, was it good? Was it, this is 50, 50? W- where was it at at that point in terms of technology?
3: Well, Dr. Joe, who started it with Tommy John mm-hmm. was very, very positive. And I, here, here's my deal with that. I look at it and back in 86, I went, I was in the hospital for five days and then I had it redone back in 2000 and I was in the hospital for three hours. Wow. And I thought, look how far medicine has come in that period of time. And so it was, it was bizarre because he did surgery on me. And then I wake up that night, I turn on the TV and he's sitting in front row at the Lakers game. And I thought, you didn't even invite me, dude. (laughs) But He was so good at what he did. And when I came back uh, with the Dodgers, He's the one who got the Dodgers to sign me. And he goes, this guy's in incredible shape. You need to sign him. He he and I had a relationship over the years because, oh, I hate to say this over your podcast, but apparently when people have Tommy John surgery, if you take care of yourself, you come back throwing harder.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And so when I came back, everybody was like, oh, well, maybe my 14-year-old son needs that. And that is totally the wrong thing because you're still going into the body and moving stuff around on somebody who's not even fully grown yet. It's just ridiculous.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And so I hate that part of it. But for me, it worked. And a lot of guys it worked and they did come back, throwing harder, but for whatever reason, if your listeners do, don't take your teenagers to go get Tommy John surgery. Sure. So they throw harder because nothing is guaranteed once they go in and they start cutting.
1: How, how hard were you thrown in those days? I know you were, you were high nineties or mid to mid to high nineties when you got to Tampa Bay. But before that, in the early days, how hard were you throwing? Would you guess?
3: Uh, 86, 88, sometimes
1: 89. Wow. So you were a crafty lefty then?
3: Yeah, I had a big knuckle curve. And if I could throw that for strikes, you were in trouble. <laughs> the problem was most of the time I couldn't throw it for strikes. So I was in trouble. <laughs> so
1: is that like, a, is that the same thing as a spike curveball?
3: Yes. Okay.
1: Yeah. I've, you don't hear of too many guys throwing it, but uh, when it's executed well, I think Mike Messina had one of the best ones of all time. But um, when it's executed well, yeah, you can't do anything with it. So in 87, you came back, you were back in Stockton. You played with a very young Gary Sheffield. Uh, Obviously, maybe Hall of Fame caliber or just about. What do you remember about playing with him?
3: I remember he was related to Dwight Gooden and everybody knew that. Mm -hmm. And the kid I watched come in is not the man I saw playing baseball. Really? Let's just say he changed a lot and he seasoned himself very well. And he came in and I remember them one day, all the scouts came in after he came into Stockton and they were timing him and gunning him throwing from short to first. And he was throwing 96 mile an hour from wow. shortstop to first base. Wow. And I thought, why aren't you pitching dude? <laughs> but very talented guy and could just murder the ball.
1: Well, weren't there rumors that he kind of dogged it to get out of Milwaukee, too? I think I think that was uh, something I had heard, too. So your your point is well taken now that he's working as an agent and all that. And, you know, he's still very viewed as a very positive influence on the game. He's come a long way in 30 years.
3: Yes, he has. He, there's a different man than the child that came.
1: So I hate to ask you about another teammate that passed away, but Daryl Hamilton was on your team that year, too, and he was on MLB Network. And. He too saw um, an end of his life that was tragic as well. How well did you get to know him?
3: Daryl Hamilton could make anybody on the face of the earth love him. He was the funniest, easygoing guy I've ever known in my life. And they also extremely talented. And so when you lose someone like that who just, you're my teammate, we're going to have fun, let's go. And even opposing players loved him. I mean, he just had this personality that was magnetic. And just a great guy. Loved him.
1: So the next year you missed as well. Was uh, was it another injury of to the elbow or something else? Or what happened in 1988?
3: You know, back then pitchers ran and they didn't lift weights. And so for me, what happened was I worked so hard on my elbow, getting it in shape that I forgot to work out my shoulder. And so my elbow was great and my shoulder was not. Mm. And so, Doctor Job went in and tightened up my cuff muscles, and so I missed another part of the season.
1: And that's a kiss of death for a lot of pitchers—the the, the rotator cuff in the shoulder. Am I am I mistaken?
3: No, you're absolutely right. And I've got one kid that I've worked with who had a slap tear. Oh wow! And it's that is very—it's it, almost devastating for a baseball player. If you hear slap tear, you just might as well go. I need to pray. That's. A, <laughs> you pray and hope something can happen that makes it come back. Cause that's very hard to come back from.
1: I think that's what ended Johan Santana's career, if I'm not mistaken, a former twin and, and met, but um, yeah, the slap tears, the, you know, that ends careers. I think um, I want to say Sean Markham had one of those as well, but uh, wow, that that sounds terrible.
3: I mean, it sounds so benign and you're like slap tear. Oh, it's a baby tear. Who cares? Right. right. No, that's a big deal. So
1: how how difficult was it to be done with baseball the first time around? I mean, you spent a decade out of organized baseball. Was it difficult, or was it just time?
3: It was time. At twenty-four, I was in Dr. Jim Andrews' office in Birmingham, and he goes, "Look, I can fix your arm and put you back on the field, but the decision here is what do you want to do." And I say, "It's time for me to grow up, man." And so I went home. I went to college. I got married to my future ex-wife, and we had a couple of kids. And I started teaching. And I thought, if I can't play the game I love, maybe I can teach it. And so that's where the teaching bug came in. Mm-hmm. I've always loved working with kids. And so it just seemed a natural fit. I had done everything wrong with my approach. And I thought, if I can teach them everything and do wrong, then they'll do it right. <laughs> and that that's how I went about it.
1: I think that's the anti-Ted Williams approach.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And. You know, of course, there's a little bit of difference between me and Ted Williams, but we won't go into that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So in in 89, though, when you briefly, briefly were with the White Sox, did you get to play with Frank Thomas? I know he was in uh, Sarasota at the same time, or at least that season. Did you get to play with him?
3: You know, I was in spring training. And my second day in camp, I got the flu. And for three and a half weeks, I was in my hotel room, sick as a dog. I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't even move. I was just, I was that sick. I lost 15 pounds. Oh, wow. And then, so when I get back to spring training, what do I do? I try, "Ah, yeah, I can throw three innings. What do you want me to do? (laughs) And so I throw three innings and hurt my arm. And you go from AAA and then all of a sudden, you're all the way back to the surgery table. And... We're not doing that anymore.
1: Yeah, that was, so, that was the last one.
3: I just made a decision uh, I'm going to teach, and that's what I went back and did.
1: So in addition to teaching, I mean, what what kept you busy the ten, in the 10 years between uh, pro ball stints? I assume teaching, you know, have, having and developing a family. Uh, you know, what
3: took up that time as well? Well, being a dad, and my dad was so bad that I thought I can take that person and know how not to parent. What I will do is I will teach my kids like my grandparents helped me from 15 to 18. I live with my grandparents. They taught me how to do everything right. For the first 15 years, I learned how to blame everybody else for my problems.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And so when I had kids, they never got yelled at. They never got hit. They never got told they were stupid. And so I love them. I just thought when I put Hunter in my arms, my oldest child, all I did was cry and look at him and go, who could touch a kid? Right. And just a love for kids. And I was afraid at first to have kids because I thought, I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like my dad. And then they put him in my arms and I thought, no way. <laughs> no. And so fatherhood for me became natural. And then I became a lot of kids' fathers, either in the classroom or on the field. What did you teach? I taught science. I taught biology. I taught physics. I taught um, physical science. I taught anatomy and physiology one year anything to do with science I love. So I was a science guy.
1: Well, I totally agree with your approach on parenting because my, uh, my only one turns two tomorrow and yeah, I, I don't understand oh, wow. how people can, people can treat their children that way. And, and I had a, an, an odd upbringing to say the least. So I can, I can, I can feel where you're coming from there and I appreciate your perspective.
3: Well, it's awesome and good luck, man. And don't blink cause I grow up quick.
1: I already feel like I have, but, um, yeah. So, I'm sure you've gotten this question a million different times before. I want to ask it in a way that maybe is a little bit different. If you ever just stop and think of, of your life being a Disney movie, what does that feel like to you? I mean, I guess most Disney movies are cartoons, so there's not a lot of people that have that experience. So you're a little bit unique in that respect. But when, if you ever stop and think about it, and, and maybe you never have, I don't know, what what do you think when when you think that thought?
3: That's a hard thought. I'll tell you what I did think. I thought, and I still think even at 55, the whole experience was incredibly surreal. Hey, all these people want to make a movie about you. What? I'm an old fat coach. Who cares? (laughs) Hey, you made the big leagues. Hey, Bill Plasky wrote an article about you in the LA Times, the Sunday paper. And now you have to change your name in a hotel. What? Hey, we're going to go around to all these people with all these different uh, production companies. and You're going to meet all these people. And you know, meeting Noah Wiley and all these guys, and I thought, where am I? I've been in West Texas, and now I'm meeting movie stars, and surreal to say the least. Being on a movie set and everybody's looking at you every time they film something surreal, and going to the movie theater and having my youngest daughter blow me up in the middle of the movie, going, "That's my daddy!" <laughs> um, surreal. I can't going, imagine that. That yeah, that actually happened, and. All that transpired over such a short period of time, and it was just a little bet with a group of kids, and it's turned into this. And now Disney, who owns everything in the country, Mm -hmm. is going to get behind it, and they're going to throw their thing, and they're asking you who you want to play you, and what type of movie do you want? What? But this is Disney. And, I mean, just the whole thing was incredibly surreal. Even some days I wake up now and go, did I really go through all this? I mean it's just it it is it is that surreal.
1: Did it did it compare or contrast with your tr- your trip to the big leagues? You you know, that first time you got called up in uh was it ninety eight or ninety nine? I know it was one of those years. Um, you know, how how did that compare the the whirlwind of events?
3: Let's just say this. When you're a five year old watching a game on TV and you want to be on that TV with those guys playing against the best people in the world, Mm -hmm. a movie experience doesn't compare. I kind of figured. When you get out on that field and you're facing Frank Thomas for real, and he's as tall as you are, and you're standing on top of a mound, (laughs) and you've got Derek Jeter up or any of the Yankees that you pitch against, and you're in Fenway where the 10-year-old kid you watched from the bleachers, you watched Hank Aaron play. And now here you are getting to play there 25 years later. At 35, I took the game as like a chance at something I wanted when I was young. But if I have got it when I was young, I wouldn't have respected it like I did at 35, having been through everything. What? And so I took everything in, man, and that was back when the Yankees had their old stadium. Mm-hmm. And took a picture with Lou Gehrig's monument and blew it up and gave it to my grandmother for Christmas, and she cried for four hours. And just what an experience going out to eat with Fred McGriff. Who in their right mind does that? Who was teaching three months earlier? Right. If somebody would have told just, you
1: <laughs> ten years earlier, how 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 would, how would that how would that have blown your mind if at twenty four? That, you know, you're on the table and they say, well, we got to cut you open again. If they would have said, guess what? 10 years from now, you're going to be in the big leagues again, or for the first time, rather, you'll be in the professional ranks again. You would have, you would have had to have been super skeptical, but I mean, could you even imagine it?
3: No, I was so distant from that thought. By the time I was 24, I was disenfranchised and I thought this is a dream that's not reachable for me. And so maybe I can help other kids reach it. And so that kind of – that helped me with the pain of not getting my dream. And for years, being able to coach and work with kids helped me. And when those kids challenged me to come back, and I thought, you guys are hitting me all over the park, man. How am I going to go try out for a major league team? And then I go find out, and then I'm like, oh, my God, I've been throwing 98 at high school kids. (laughs) And you just go, wow, that's – no wonder we could hit a fastball.
1: Yeah, you were uh, you were preparing them. Well, was the movie uh, true to life as much as you would have liked?
3: Absolutely. When we made the bet, the kids couldn't hit me. By the time the season was over, I couldn't get them out. And just constantly throwing batting practice. And, you know, the one thing that people go, what about the radar gun on the side of the road? And I'm like, you know what? The sign was there, but the science teacher here wasn't smart enough to realize. If you get out and throw a baseball, I had to light up. I said, the screenwriter was that smart. And so that got put in the movie. I said, but it just lets the audience know that I had no idea how hard I threw because those kids are hitting me until I got to the tryout. And then they tell me, and I'm like, you're kidding me, man. I only threw 88 before.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Now I'm supposed to be an old man for the big leagues. And I'm throwing 98 to 102. Are you kidding me? It totally blew my mind.
1: Unbelievable. How did the promise start? You know, How did the the kids get that bug in your ear, very first, like, inclination that you would do this? How did that start?
3: We played, well, I'll just go back before that. I had a meeting with our athletic director, and it was outside of the locker room. And he berated the kids, and he berated me and told me I'd never be successful because I was too nice. You need to be, like, more like me and step on people. And those kids heard that. They were right around the corner in the locker room changing. And so the first two games of that year were like 15 to 1 and 15 to 0. And We didn't have 15. What do you do? And so I went down there to my kids, and I started talking about everything my grandparents taught me. And the bet came out of it. And like, if we win a district championship, which these kids had never won a championship in baseball, if we do that, then you try out. And I was just going to appease him and go, yeah, okay. Not telling you that the last time I had surgery, the doctor said you'll never, ever pitch again, physically impossible. But I also had a grandfather go, if you ever make a promise, you live up to it. And so I was willing to embarrass myself. Mm-hmm. I'm old. I'm fat. I look like a baseball scout, not a baseball player. <laughs> sure. Can't get high school kids out. Let's go to a tryout. Why not? So where did and you find a And then I one? go and I find out, wow. Where did, where did you find a
1: trail? Like how, how far did you have to go?
3: It was in my hometown. It was an hour and 10 minutes away. And I got there and nobody would play catch with me. They thought I was crazy. And I just, I had to wait for four and a half hours while everybody tried out. And in the meantime, I've got my kids with me. And so we're playing games and having a picnic and I'm changing diapers. I got a one-year-old there. Mm-hmm. And then the scout brings me out and I throw. And he he's just flabbergasted. One gun turned into two, two turned into Three. He told some kid that was a hitter to grab a bat and get in the box. And that kid goes, what? You want me to get in there against that? And I thought, wow. So it's either really good or really bad. And then when I come off the mound, he catches me. He goes, you're throwing 98 every pitch. I was just stunned. And I thought, you have got to be kidding me. I didn't even warm up. Wow. So... From that
1: day until you pitched in the big leagues, what was that path like? I mean, had to just be a a rapid
3: whirlwind. Yeah, I got home. I had a whole bunch of messages on the phone. They wanted me to come back and try it again. So two days later, I went back with my kids and part of my team, tried out again, and rained extremely bad. They had to have me a brand-new baseball every pitch, sliding up to my knee in mud, 96 to 98 every pitch. They're like, okay, his arm didn't fall off, so let's do this. Mm Mm-hmm. Two days later, I'm in Florida at rehab camp losing coaching weight. And, you know, I tell audiences, I go, that's three weeks of the best diet I never want to be on again. (laughs) And I believe it, you know, 30 pounds lighter. They send me to meet the double A team on the road. and I'm there for three days. The first night I come in with the guy on first, I get a double play ball. I strike out a guy, 91, 92. The next night, two innings, 98, 99, five, got six guys. I faced five of them struck out. So the next day I'm in AAA and then eight weeks in Durham. And then when we get knocked out of the playoffs, I'm in the big leagues. I walk into a clubhouse with Wade Boggs, Fred McGriff, Jose Canseco, Roberto Hernandez. And I'm just like, wow, it's just totally different from being in a classroom with 30 kids.
1: Yeah, it just has to be as this real life. I mean, that's got to be one of the first things you think, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Yeah, and Wade Boggs had heard about the crazy science teacher for three months. And so he, he comes up and greets me, hugs me, goes, man, that is the best story I've ever heard. And I'm looking at him, and I'm still a coach and a teacher, right? And I'm like, you're Wade Boggs, <laughs> <laughs> just being a stupid fan. Yep. And he giggled at me, and he walked off. But Hall of Fame, and just, wow, what a career. Did, did
1: they make you wait days to get in, or did they get you heated up and into a game right away?
3: You know, I threw three days in a row in the playoffs in AAA, and I thought there is no way they're putting me in, and I wasn't the, the day I got called up. That's
1: unbelievable. Well, that's good, though, that they got you in without having to think about what it could be like. I've heard that guys come up for the first time and they want to get in there. They're chomping at the bit just to get that chance because, first of all, they don't want to come up and never get in. But second of all, then you don't have time to get in your own mind about what's it going to be like? Am I going to fail? Am I going to struggle? Or am I going to be you know, successful or not?
3: Yeah, to me, I was just. The run from the bullpen to the mound was something I will never in my life forget. And everything I'd been through, good, bad, up and down, flashed in front of me. And by the time I stepped onto the mound, I couldn't hear the crowd anymore. I couldn't see anything except my catcher. And it was just a really bizarre experience. And it was just me and him. Playing catch, So and the old adage. Him, yeah, he just he he said one fastball, three slider, four changeup. I said good, and we threw four fastballs, struck out Royce Clayton. Walt Disney makes a movie, and now you're talking to me. Wow,
1: what uh, are any of those guys on that team? Guys, you keep up with now.
3: Roberto Hernandez and I stay in contact because he. He took me under his wing, and he was a fantastic guy and There were a bunch of guys I had phone numbers of, but you know twenty years, and all of a sudden you start changing phones ten times, and I drop numbers and mm-hmm. the guys retire, they move on, they go do their stuff, you lose contact with some people, and you get more contacts with new people so you now Roberto and I are good friends we Torn apart a couple of cough courses in our lives. And <laughs> I'm not saying that in a good way. No.
1: <laughs> when uh, when you think about your time in the big leagues, and and be as open ended and as open as you want. How, how do you think of it? I mean, ful- is it ful- the word of fulfilling? Is the word magical? I mean, I I guess magical is probably more of a Disney thing. But uh, you know, if if you could put you use one word, is it even possible?
3: Unbelievable. In my mind, for me, making that transition at 35, starting off about 260 pounds, nine surgeries, no way. Unbelievable. And then getting to go and doing it and the experience for me was fascinating. I learned a lot in a little bit of time. The one thing that I take away from it was year old who had a dream of making things is different from that 36 or 37 year old guy who is a father who loves his kids dearly who now he wants to watch them chase their dreams and so baseball kind wasn't my main dream anymore it was my kids and that's when my dream came back to me was when I was a father and I should have been retiring from the game. Here I am entering the game. And so unbelievable, fascinating conflict because I wanted to be home with my kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And just fast.
1: Is that, is there we any- were on a
3: plane. We were landing. We were playing. We were on a plane. We were going to our next city going, and just fast.
1: Is Is there anything you'd have changed?
3: No, I mean the proper answer for most sane people would be wish I got there when I was twenty one. Sure. That's fair. But but for me I wouldn't have taken the game to heart like I did at thirty five, getting that second chance and not taking it for granted like I did when I was a kid. And when the, listening to coaches go, Some of you guys aren't gonna be here forever and when you're a kid you're like, Yeah, whatever. And then when you're 24, 25, you're going, I get what he said now. And then when you're 35 and you're looking at it and you're like, well, maybe I can help these kids, you actually get your shot back. Unbelievable.
1: Did you get to mentor
3: any kids like that?
1: I mean, I know you weren't in the big leagues for an extraordinary amount of time, but are, were there kids that you felt like you had a, a positive influence on in that clubhouse?
3: Oh. I don't know that I was a positive influence. I was always positive, but I was there because I wanted to play baseball. They were there because they wanted to play baseball and we wanted to get better. And so Dan Wheeler is one of the kids and they put us on a baseball card together because it was the youngest and the oldest. And I thought that kind of sucks right there. (laughs) And so he made fun of me. He goes, dude, you and I are on a baseball card. I'm the young one. I'm like, shut up. (laughs) And But yeah, he and I would hang out in the outfield and have competitions against each other during batting practice, 500, playing 500. And if you're not a baseball fan, I'm sorry, but that's just things you do to waste time and you play 500.
1: I remember playing that. People that don't know it's someone throws or hits a ball and you have a group of people trying to get to 500. It's pretty basic, but a lot of fun. So – uh, to be on a baseball card, I mean, that, that's that got to be just a, also just a life-changing thought of like, I had these when I was a kid. I put them in the spokes of my bike or I put them in little clasp holders or whatever. I mean, nowadays it's probably being on a, a baseball video game or something. But, I mean, being on a baseball card, thats that had to have been a pretty crazy experience too.
3: I was sitting in my hotel one night after a game in spring training signing 10,000 cards. And my agent brought in a check from Disney and the book deal check. And I just thought, wow. I'm signing baseball cards. I'm getting movie for them to make money to make a movie. I money to write a book. And now I'm playing the game I love. Holy cow, it doesn't get any better than this. And then to have people 20 years later still sending me cards going, can you sign this? did that really happen? Are you kidding me? It's crazy. So, yeah. And then I look in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, it's been 20 years. Okay. (laughs)
1: How, How long does it take to write a book? I mean, as someone who'd like to write one someday, I mean, I write baseball stories now, but I've never written anything close to that long. What was that process like?
3: If you start dragging it out, it takes forever. That was very hard for me because then you were forced to look back at some of the mistakes you made along the way. And you're like, I was stupid. and But if you're writing about baseball because you love baseball, then it would be totally different. It's your passion. It's what you want to do, and so you sit down and you do it. Right now, we're writing a book based off one of my speeches that I've been given for the last several years, and it's taken us a while because the author and I, he's trying to catch my voice and hadn't quite got it, so he'll send me a chapter, and I'm putting my voice into it. And then he's going, what about this? And then I put my voice into it. And so that'll be out the spring training of next year. And it's, it's been a process, man, because you're back and forth trying to get things done. You're trying to make it sound right. You're trying to make it sound like you. And when you say make it sound like you, you're trying to make it sound smart. So everybody thinks you're smart. Sometimes that's not possible, but it's just tedious. How's that?
1: That's perfect. Are you are you going to go on a tour to promote
3: it or sign at any Absolutely. Stores? I've already got a book company. We've talking to PR people. Uh the main title is going to be Dreammakers. We haven't come up with a subtitle yet. And in July we'll have that. And we'll have the book cover and yeah, it's happening and it's taken us a long time. And there is so much stuff I could talk to you about that's happened between the end of baseball and now that's just it would blow your mind.
1: Oh sure. Yeah. Well, however we can help you promote that, please feel free to reach out because, you know, we we very, very much appreciate you coming on. I know that you're staying busy now with uh, some motivational speaking and that sort of thing. What what takes up your time? Is baseball still part of your everyday routine or is it uh, a little bit more distant now?
3: You know, I coach a couple of kids here and there. I've got one kid at A&M who I'm not real happy with right now because he got ejected for arguing with the umpire with oh, balls cool. and strikes and then that is the first rule, though. tell them don't ever argue with the umpire, you'll never win. And so he can't pitch against Arkansas this weekend, and that really frustrates me. But this is a kid I started working out with when he was 14, I think, and he was 5'9". And now he's 20, and he's 6'4", 6'5", 220, wow. and throwing electric gas and a great curveball. So I'm happy for him. He's got a great name, so he's got to be a pitcher,
1: man. Hit us with that name so we can hear it.
3: Asa Lacey.
1: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) How
3: how is that for a pitcher, for a starting pitcher, Asa?
1: I think that that sounds like someone who was born to pitch. Absolutely. That's that's incredible. Well, how can people keep up with what you're up to? I know they can follow you on Twitter and that sort of thing. Uh, How can they keep up, or do you have a website they can check out to see what you're up to? Yeah, Jim the Rookie Morris. Perfect. And on Twitter, I know it's, let me share it here again, uh, at Jim Morris 6363 Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. And, um, you know, is there anything you want to get out as far as a message for, for what you're working on or what you'd like to tell people that are listening and, you know, maybe just need a little inspiration?
3: Yeah, this book that's coming out next year, Dream Makers, it's about the type of people you surround yourself with are going to be the type of person you become, and so the better caliber of people you hang out with, the better you are, and the better off you'll be. And so I want people to read that, but I also want them to share it with their kids because I think that's very important now. With kids and social media, we're putting a lot of pressure on everything because the social media thing is now, 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 mm-hmm. and it's the press of a button, and that's life. That's that's not life. That's That's digital world and that's not life. That's not living. That's not here. That's not now. And so, yeah, for parents to sit down with their kids and talk about it and go, you know what, let's put the computer down. Let's put the phone down and let's have some eye to eye contact and talk to each other like we care about each other. And see where it goes from there.
1: Well, perfect. We I've raised
3: for... I've raised five millennials, and we've all had the phone problem and the computer problems. Wow. And there have been times I've had to lock them up and just go, you know what, we're done, or you take them on vacation where the computers don't work. <laughs> <laughs> take them and then Montana. they go, you know what? I don't even miss being on it. I'm like, see. So yeah, Brandon, I'll I'll be, I'll make sure we get back in touch with you when we're getting ready to launch and we'll tell you when we'll be up there in the Minnesota way.
1: Yeah, that would be great. We'd love to get a big group of people out there to check it out. I know the, the local Sabre chapter is big on those kind of things. So we can get some people out for that. And thank you so much again for your time. He's Jim Morris. Tom Schreier was with us earlier in the show. We've got producer Justin. This is Brandon Warren saying thank you so much for listening to Midwest Swing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network.